Week three in a row from Jesus, giving us all kinds of good news from divorce to chopping off limbs to give away everything that you have. <laughs> the hits just keep on coming. I heard a story this week of this little girl and her mom. They were driving to church, and when they pulled in to the church, the mom turned around and she pulled out two dollars $2 bills, and she handed them to her daughter, and she said, I want you to take this money, these $2, $1 is for God. I want you to put it in the offering at church today. And she said, the other dollar is for you. I want you to do whatever you want to with it. That dollar is yours. So they get out of the car. They start walking into church. The little girl stumbles over the curb on the way into the door, and the dollar bills fall out of her hand. The wind comes and starts to sweep them away. And she manages to grab one dollar before the other one floats off. And she said, sorry, God, there goes your dollar. <laughs> we don't like talking about money, and for good reason, right? This is one of the ways that the church has been corrupted. This is one of the things that is unsettling to us the way that this has been used in things like indulgences and a lot of ways that the church was never really intended to talk about money. It's been abused and misused and it's just uncomfortable. I really don't want to talk about money today, but I've kind of strayed from the gospels the last few weeks and for this kind of reason, right, that these things are uncomfortable for us. We don't like having these conversations, but... Uh, the further I got into this week, the more I felt like we need to spend a little bit of time here. Um, this is one of the places where J Jesus makes things devastatingly simple and personal for us. And part of the tension that we see in Mark's Gospels is that the, the disciples have moments where they take Jesus at his word. They understand exactly what he is saying. And then there are times when Jesus speaks plainly to them, and they go, what does this mean, Jesus? Um, they kind of pick and choose, right, what they're looking for. And we do the very, the very same thing. That so often we find ways to just pick and choose what we're looking for. And so then we pick and choose what we're going to find. Rachel Held Evans summarizes this idea. She says this, if you are looking for verses with which to support slavery, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to abolish slavery, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to oppress women, you will find them. If you're looking for verses with which to liberate or honor women, you will find them. If you're looking for reasons to wage war, you will find them. If you're looking for reasons to promote peace, you will find them. If you're looking for an outdated, irrelevant, ancient text, you will find it. If you're looking for truth, believe me, you will find it. If you want to do violence in this world, she says, you will always find the weapons. But if you want to heal, you will always find the balm. Our text out of Hebrews today suggests something similar. It says, indeed, the word of God is living and active, 
sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing until it divides soul from spirit, joints from marrow. It is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And before God, no creature is hidden. All are laid bare before the eyes of the one to whom we must render an account. So when we come to a difficult text like this today, we need to ask ourselves, what are we looking for? What are we looking for? This issue of money and possessions, again, it's plagued the church for a long time. We see this in so many ways that it's been used in ways of corruption and manipulation and things like indulgences and all of these really ugly ways. This is one of the spaces where we see the beginning of what we know as the prosperity gospel, right? This is the prosperity gospel wasn't always just about money. It was so much more about appearances because if I look as if I'm doing well, if I'm dressed in the right clothes, if I have the right things and live in the right house, people will think that God is blessing me. People will think that God is present in my life. And so we go through all kinds of extremes to keep up appearances, to make sure that we look as if we are the people who God is present to. And still today, we dress up our lives in all kinds of ways. And we do this for all kinds of reasons, but many of them are for the exact same reasons that the prosperity gospel people have been doing it throughout time. We still dress up our lives all the time to appear a certain way before certain people. In Mark's gospel, this rich young ruler, he is the one who comes kneeling before Jesus, wanting to know, what else can I do? And Jesus responds to him in such an interesting way. He says, keep the commandments. This is his encouragement to this rich young ruler. And apparently, Jesus never got around to reading Luther. (laughs) That we are saved by grace through faith, not works. We're not saved through laws and commands, but here's Jesus telling this person who's asking, what do I need to do to inherit eternal life? And he tells him, keep the commandments. Why? Because remember, Jesus does not come to abolish the law. Jesus comes to fulfill the law, to make it possible for us to live in the fullness of what it is to be under the law of Christ. And so he lists them, most of them, He says, don't murder, don't commit adultery, don't steal, don't bear false witness. He adds this one, don't defraud anyone, honor your parents. And of course, the rich young man replies to him, I've done all of these things for a long time now. Since my youth, he says, I've kept these commandments. If you've been counting, Jesus tells him, keep the commandments which there are, of course, how many? Ten. Thank you. We are going to get around to this course on the commandments at some point. (laughs) But then Jesus only lists six things. Keep the commandments. Here are the six. Now, of course, this young man knows that something's missing. But he also knows that The commandments that Jesus lists are all of the commandments that have to do with us and our neighbors. The ways that we interact in the world, how we see and view and value 
one another. And he leaves out all of the commandments that have to do with God and the image of God. The one about having no other gods. The one about not taking the Lord's name in vain. The one about not making graven images. He leaves those things out. And not only those, but he also leaves out the one about keeping the Sabbath. It's interesting that in Mark's gospel, keeping the Sabbath is a constant point of conflict for Jesus. We see it right at the jump of the gospel with his healing of the demoniac, and then we see it later on with the religious authorities. Everyone is accusing him of not keeping his own law of observing the Sabbath. And the reason that Sabbath creates conflict around Jesus is because the Sabbath life is a life that is fully integrated in love of God and love of neighbor. The Sabbath for us, when we look at the commandments, it's the hinge between these commands to love God and then these commands that Jesus lists here in loving our neighbor. The Sabbath life is the hinge between those two commands. And what Jesus is constantly pointing to, what he shows this rich young ruler, is that there is no love for God that isn't love of neighbor. And there is no love of neighbor that is not also love for God. Remember, in Christ, God is both our God and our neighbor. The Hebrew text today tells us, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. Why? Because God in Christ becomes one of us, becomes our neighbor. So he tells this rich young young ruler, it's harder to say than you think it is, do these six things. And immediately this man would have recognized these crucial commandments are missing But instead of telling Jesus, hey, you left out a few, you're telling me to keep the commands and you didn't mention anything about having no other gods, about keeping the Lord's name, about not taking the Lord's name in vain, about creating and worshiping graven images. He doesn't interrupt Jesus to remind him, hey, you left out a few. Instead, he rushes to tell Jesus, I do all of those things already. And this is the part that we don't like to hear. This is the part that's hard for us to settle in our souls. Jesus tells him three things. Sell everything you have. Give it away to the poor. Come and follow me. What's Jesus doing in this moment? In one way, Jesus is showing this man that those commands that you thought were missing about putting no other gods before him, about not worshiping graven images, about not taking the Lord's name in vain. Jesus shows him that those commands were just about you and God, but actually they're about you, they're about God, and they're about your neighbor. So if you want to make sure that you have no other gods, sell everything that you have. You want to make sure that you don't worship any carved images? Give everything away to the poor. You want to ensure that you don't take the Lord's name in vain? Then leave everything and come and follow me. And if you keep all those other commandments and you do these things, what does he promise him? You'll store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Now, what does that mean? 
I'm not sure. We're going to talk more about that later. But whatever it does mean, whatever treasure in heaven means, it certainly is about what remains when God is all in all. It's about those things that offer us real value, whatever it is. It has to do with the way of loving God that has everything to do with loving our neighbor and how loving our neighbor has everything to do with loving God. Whatever is left at the end of that, that is treasure in heaven. And certainly, this doesn't mean that we should love God instead of our neighbor. It doesn't mean that we should love or long for heaven instead of the world. Remember John 3.16, God so loved the world. And it certainly doesn't mean that we should only desire eternity while we neglect real time and space. George MacDonald, he... Uh, was born in the 1820s, and he wrote a devastating sermon on this interaction between Jesus and this rich young ruler. It's actually really difficult to read. Um, but before he gets to the absurdity of this story, and then, of course, our response to it, he points out something that should be pretty obvious. He says this, There is no kingdom of this world into which a rich man may not easily enter. What's he saying? Every kingdom of this world is made for the rich. That every kingdom of this world is designed for the benefit of those who have. And he says, but if he be but rich enough, he may not be the first. A kingdom into which it would be easy for a rich man to enter could be no kingdom of heaven. What's he saying? He's saying that when we find ourselves fitting easily into the kingdoms that value money, the kingdoms that value power, the kingdoms that value control, we can be sure that we are never finding ourselves fitting in easily to the kingdom of God. He's saying that the kingdom of heaven is a different kind of place altogether. He's saying that so long as we try to play by the same rules as every other kingdom, we'll only find ourselves frustrated, like a camel trying to squeeze through the eye of a needle. It just doesn't work. McDonald goes on to this hypothetical conversation that he creates between this person that he calls an honest Christian youth and himself. And this honest youth has all the feelings that I'm sure most of us have when we engage with this text, that we, we like to think this is all some kind of metaphor, right? Certainly, it's not really about money. It's got to be about some other thing that, well, it was, it was much easier to be rich back then and then to give away everything. It didn't really affect your life all that much. Or this is maybe my favorite excuse that he creates for this rich, honest Christian youth is that... Well, this person was a Jew trying to figure out how to fit into the kingdom of God, but I'm a Christian. <laughs> I've got this all figured out already. I do belong in the kingdom of God. There's no qualifications here for how this happens. And then McDonald goes on to respond in this conversation that he's having with himself, and he cuts right to the heart of what I think this passage is supposed to show us. 
He essentially says that we get so hung up on the money stuff because it seems like too much to ask of us. And so much is riding on us getting this right. I mean, we are talking about eternal life. And McDonald says that while we're hung up on Jesus' response, we fail to even consider the ways in which the rich young ruler was already righteous. So he asks of this honest Christian youth, when was the last time that you looked back over the years of your life and you could honestly say that you've kept the commandments and then you were so frustrated by the results of keeping the commandments that you were filled with the desire to live a holy and blameless life that you were the one who ran and knelt at the feet of Jesus in order to learn more of the way of eternal life. He says, or have you never even considered what it is to seek eternal life? Have you never hungered and thirsted after the righteousness of God, the perfection of your being? If so, <laughs> then be comforted, he says. If you're someone who has never considered your own righteousness, if you're never someone who has thought what it is to pursue eternal life, how to become more holy or more blameless, he says, be comforted if you've never found yourself in such a situation because Jesus does not require of you to sell what you have and give it to the poor. He says, go and follow Jesus. Go with him to preach the good news. You who care nothing for righteousness, but you are not the one whose company is desirable by the master. Be comforted, he says. He will not ask you to open your purse for him. Oh, and if that doesn't just suck enough, he goes on. <laughs> He said, what is, is Christ to be obliged to one outside the kingdom? Is Christ meant to make an easy way into the people who are untrue, the ignoble for money? Asking as if the God of all creation really needs your cash. <laughs> he says, bring God a true heart, an obedient hand. He has given his lifeblood for that. Jesus doesn't need our money. He wants our lives. But your money, McDonald says, he neither cares nor wants for it. What's happening here? McDonald is reminding us that while we are so hung up on whether or not Jesus really meant for us to sell everything that we have and give it all away, what concerns God is righteousness right living that's animated by love of God and love of neighbor. He's saying that most of us haven't even made it that far. <laughs> so don't worry about your bank account. He says a little later in the sermon, go and keep the commandments. It has not come to your money yet. Most of us haven't gotten there. Okay, deep breath. The reality is things are just a part of our life. It's part of the physical, material world that we live in, to have stuff, to have a relationship with possessions, right? The issue here is about our relationship to things. It's the ways that we possess the things in our lives, knowing that all things that we have are gifts to be received. 
And the first gift that we're ever given, the first thing that we ever receive is our body. And our bodies grow and we learn independence and we learn true possession of our bodies. But we must possess them and not be possessed by them. And this is true of all of the things in our lives. That so long as there are things in our life that we feel like we can't do without, we'll never truly possess them. Let me say that again. So long as there are things in our lives that we feel like we cannot do without those things, we will never rightly possess them. Instead, we become the people who are possessed by them. And this is, again, true of everything in our life. And so Jesus tells this rich young ruler, if you can do that, you'll have treasure in heaven. Back to this treasure in heaven business. McDonald calls treasure in heaven the things that belong. Treasures in heaven, he says, belong not to the world of speech, but to the world of silence. Not to the world of showing, but to the world of being. To the world that cannot be shaken, the world that must remain. Treasures in heaven belong there. And whatever that is, whatever it is that remains in this world that cannot be shaken, that's what is promised us. That's what is promised us when we learn to rightly possess things. So it's not about having things or not having things. It's about whether we are possessing them or are they possessing us. And whether we are rich or are we, are, we are poor, it's just as easy for us to find ourselves enslaved to the very same desires that we desire for money as we are to desire money itself. Whether you are someone who has much or you have little, it's all about our desire for the thing that matters. There is no difference whether you are rich or you are poor. So long as your desire for money remains, we're enslaved by the same problem. We still live under the possession of things rather than possessing things rightly. And then to make things more uncomfortable, Jesus has to go and open his mouth about this business of a hundredfold return. I wish he didn't, but he did. And this verse in particular has been misused and abused for so long by so many. Historically, the church acknowledged that this hundredfold return is a kind of promise but it's a kind of promise of what the church has known and called gospel giving. Gospel giving. We're familiar with tithing, the call that we all have on our lives to give of what we earn. This goes back into the Old Testament of not harvesting the corners of our fields, right? That we leave some aside for God and for God's kingdom. We're familiar with that. We're also familiar with offerings, Right? We're going to have an opportunity at the end of our service where this is more than just your tie. This is something extra that you're doing to, to further some project or some work of God in the world. So we, we're familiar with tithing. We're familiar with offerings. We're not so familiar with gospel giving. Gospel giving is the kind of giving that we engage in that actually changes your position in life. 
It's the kind of giving where we are giving up houses or cars or our career or vocation of living in a certain place, those things that you've planned for, and instead offering those things to the work of God, the work of the kingdom and the world. And not only does this kind of giving change your position, this kind of giving also makes it possible for the community of faith to write a whole new kind of story. It actually opens up space for the community of faith to move forward into the future in a new kind of way, to do a new thing in a, in a place. One of the stories that I thought of, um, it doesn't have much to do with sanctuary, but when we uh, moved into the building on 31st Street, we knew that that space was Woodlake Assembly of God. They'd been there for decades. And when we asked them about their whole process of building this massive facility, they said that the bank would never give us a loan to actually build this building. So we went to our people and we said, we're not going to be able to build this building. And about 20 or so families actually stepped forward and they said, well, we'll put our own houses up as collateral <laughs> so they could build that building. I'm not interested in, first of all, I'm not asking you to put your house up for collateral. We are, are not building some massive facility anywhere, so <laughs> hear me there. This is just an example of what it looks like to put yourself in a position that actually changes your status, that actually makes the future of the community of faith possible and vibrant to flourish in the world. This is gospel giving. It's called gospel giving because it's the giving that is exampled by God in Christ. That in Christ, God is the one who has parted with all of his possessions so that we can possess him. In Christ, God is the one who has come near to the poor, to the one that God himself identifies with. That God in Christ is the one who has come to live humbly with us and among us. And the promise that we receive as people of God, is that by baptism, God has made it possible for us to let go of family and friends and security, that we can empty ourselves so that we might receive back from God a hundredfold. And brothers and sisters, mothers and children, even, the text says, eternal life itself. Here's what I know. The things that belong, the things that remain are faith, hope, and love. The greatest of these, the text tells us, is love. And if we're going to be people who love God and who love our neighbor, we can't afford to be possessed by our things. Instead, we have to learn to rightly possess the things that we have. What I don't know is where you find yourself in all of this today. Maybe you're someone who has at times responded like that little girl. Sorry, God. There goes your dollar. <laughs> Maybe you have concerned yourself too much with the financial demands of the gospel when you haven't given enough consideration to first living in ways that are right and just 
and true. Maybe you're someone who you know or you feel like God is nudging you into that space of gospel giving, whatever that might look like. That scary, uncertain place of gospel giving. Wherever you find yourself, know this. One translation of our gospel text says that when the young ruler answered Jesus, Jesus, it says, looked steadily at him and loved him. Jesus looked steadily at him and loved him. Steadily at him and loved him. I love that. Know that Jesus' posture towards you never changes. Jesus today looks steadily at you and loves you. Amen.